0: Boom, boom, careful there. When your scripture reader is stronger than you, careful there. (laughs) Well, it's kind of a neat little intro because, you know what, we'll be talking today about knowing who you are and knowing your identity, so good reminder, good reminder. Uh, Funny little story about identity, as we get started, there's a, a governor in Massachusetts in the 1950s. His name was Christian Herter. And there's this famous story. Uh, I, I think the story takes place during the time he's campaigning. So he's you know, running about town, meeting voters, shaking hands, kissing babies, out in the public eye, skips breakfast. And at lunchtime, he goes out to this formal event where there's a barbecue. Um, he gets in line for lunch, he starts to go through the line, he gets to where they have the chicken, and the serving lady hands him a piece of chicken, and he looks at this piece of chicken and he realizes, I'm really hungry. Like, this piece of chicken is just not going to do it for me. So he asks the lady in line, hey, do you mind if I have another piece of chicken? And uh, the lady said, Sorry. I'm only allowed to give you one piece of chicken. There's only one piece of chicken per guest. So the governor takes a deep breath, says, "You know, ma'am, I'm I'm really hungry. I'm famished. Do you mind making an exception for me?" And she says, "Sorry, only one uh, one piece of chicken per customer." Now, Governor Herter was known to be a an unassuming man. He wasn't. Blusterous, didn't seem to have a big ego. Actually, I think it's recorded he's actually a Christian, so, um, you know, this behavior is kind of different. He actually looks at the lady and says, ma'am, do you know who I am? I'm the governor of the state. Do you mind if I get another piece of chicken? To which she replied, do you know who I am? I'm the lady in charge of the chicken. (laughs) Move along. Authority is kind of a funny thing, isn't it? I mean, we, you know, we all have some sense of authority in this life and it extends to certain areas of life and then there's areas where the authority doesn't carry over quite so well as our friend uh, Christian hurt, or learned. We're going to be walking through 2nd Peter chapter 1 today and talking about our identity and our authority in Christ. Peter starts off the passage with verse 1 saying, Simon Peter, a a servant and apostle of Jesus. Now, it's interesting that uh, Simon Peter starts off with those two descriptors of himself, right, and starting off in leaning into his identity. The word for servant there uh, is doulos. Some versions describe the that word as servant. Some describe it as slave. Maybe a good meeting of the two is as a bond servant. This was somebody who intentionally and purposely entered into servitude because they, sent, they found servitude desirable or beneficial, um, which is why I lean into that word as opposed to slave. Today, when we think of slavery, we think of, you know, kidnapping people and an enforced sense of servitude. Simon Peter's word for himself as a servant, though, Is a chosen sense of servitude. And he actually uses that descriptor before he uses the descriptor of apostle, right? It'd be be interesting to see today if, you know, if we we had 21st century apostles who had actually walked with Jesus, um, and especially if they were from Southern Cal, they'd throw out the apostle language and forget the servant part, right? Um, But what I love about Peter is that he remembers he is both saved right which is a position of humility and, and not having empowerment of needing to be saved but he's also somebody who's sent right i mean the word apostle speaks to being sent and having a purpose and being on mission for god um verse the verse goes on to those who have t- uh, to those who have obtained a faith of equal standing with ours by the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. May grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Years ago, I ran into this expression, and it's been an encouragement to me. It said, even the weakest believer holds in his hands all that the mightiest saint ever possessed. And as Peter goes on with his introduction, he actually says here, to those who have obtained a faith of equal standing to ours by the righteousness of God our Savior and Jesus Christ. See, although Peter in his introduction is calling himself a servant and a sent one, he's giving out an invitation to whoever reads this letter that, hey, the faith that I have from walking with Jesus, all of the recorded events that the apostles lived through and walked through and were empowered to do as sharing the Word of God and the miracles that came on behalf of that, my faith, he's saying, my faith is of equal standing to your faith. There's a sense that when you're born in Christ, you have all the things that you will need. You will have all the tools of faith you will need for life when you first accept Jesus as your Savior. Maybe a good metaphor for this is like watching a child being, being born, right? They're not fully developed. They don't have teeth. Sometimes they don't even have hair, right? Kind of funny story. My, my buddy had a daughter, and um, she didn't grow hair for a couple of years. So they would actually, like, take the bow and take some tape, and they would, like, tape, tape the bow on, right? Because there's no place to... There's no hair to, like, stick the bow in. They put her in a dress, and Mama wanted this cute little bow, and they like, stick it on her. And Yeah, they, they weren't worried. Like, oh, my gosh, she doesn't have hair. Call the surgeon. What are we going to do? No, 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 no. Those things are going to grow in, right? Oh, my gosh, they don't have teeth. Get some implants. No, 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 no. Those things are going to grow in. They're, they're going to be there. In the same way, when we're born of the faith, We have all the tools that we're going to need. We have all the things we're going to need. Some of those things are going to develop over time, though. We just need to be involved in the process of growing. He goes on, uh, and that kind of leads into my first point. My first point is we're called to take ownership of our growth. We're called to take ownership of our growth. Verse 3 goes on. His divine power is granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence by which he has granted to us his precious and very great promises so that through them you may be partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. For this reason, make every effort to supplant with your faith to supplant your faith with virtue, your virtue with knowledge, your knowledge with self-control, your self-control with steadfastness, your steadfastness with godliness, and godliness with brotherly affection, and brotherly affection with love. For if these qualities are yours and increasing, they keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful In the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ, for whoever lacks these qualities is so nearsighted that he's blind, having forgotten that he was cleansed from his former sins. What Paul's telling us here, what Peter's telling us here, is that qualities like self-control, virtue, godliness, and love are increasingly ours. It will protect us from being unfruitful and from falling in our faith Now, some of these attributes are kind of no-brainers, right? The first one is faith, accepting Jesus, accepting His gospel, understanding that we're sinners and can't access the perfection of heaven on our own. We need a redeemer. Supplementing that with virtue, you know, another no-brainer. When people look at Christians, they expect us to act different. Even those who would denounce our faith would say things like, but you're a Christian. Why would you do such and such and what and not? Right? With virtue, knowledge. By saying, hey, if you've accepted the Lord, you should be growing as a person and you should be obtaining knowledge from the Bible. This is an exhortation to be in the Word, to understand the person of Jesus, who He is, what He's done for us. With that knowledge, self-control. Now, some of us, like self-control might seem easy, right? Like have good manners, talk nice, but the word here for self-control along with steadfastness hints more along the lines of what Jesus had to do in the Garden of Gethsemane understanding that there was a punishment coming to him, the wrath of God on behalf of the sin of mankind, and that through that he would have to be steadfast. He's in the Garden of Gethsemane praying, not my will, Father, but your will be done, and bleeding out the palms of his hands. He's so stressful. It's actually a medical condition where the capillaries in your skin burst, And blood can come out your pores. People have this when they're under extreme, extreme stress. Supplement your steadfastness with godliness. And this next little part is kind of a cascade. Godliness, brotherly affection, and brotherly love. In being more like God, we want to come to know the world and share with the world our brotherly affection and the pure and perfect love for Jesus. So as we walk through these qualities, we see they're kind of a natural expression of what people would expect to come and see in the Christian life. It's kind of ironic that some of our heroes today actually live out personas that have nothing to do with their inner life, right? I mean, think of, think of some of our, our modern cultural heroes, everybody from you know Superman, James Bond and the immortal Napoleon Dynamite, living out personas that don't have to deal with their internal turmoil, their character development, growing in truth and godliness and self-sacrifice. It's kind of entertaining to watch some of the personas on TV, either in some of their just total lack of awareness or, you know, kind of their weirdness play out their roles without any self-introspection. It's, it's funny and humorous to watch the things that they get into, and it's empowering to see when our protagonists, be it Bruce Willis or Sylvester Stallone, by the might of their own will, conquers the day. Peter's telling us, though, that's not how we're going to conquer the day. See, part of our journey as Christians is that internal, personal sense of ownership over our own growth, and over our own development. Our culture has kind of gone sideways from having a sense of the, you know, to go back to that, that cultural discussion of what is a protagonist, what is a hero today. It's interesting to, to note, you know, 50 years ago we watched things like, like Superman or, or John Wayne, Rescue the Damsel in Distress, and today it's more like Owen Wilson living in his mom's basement can't get a job or save himself, but has four beautiful, wonderful women trying to rescue his life for him. <laughs> what, a, what a cultural commentary that is. Now, we can make arguments that art reflects culture or that culture drives art, at the end of the day, it seems like there's probably more of a symbiotic relationship as one kind of holds the hand of the other. But it's interesting to reference, even our sense of what a hero is or does is kind of changing in our culture. Peter's calling us to make every effort to be involved with our own sense of growth and development along that journey. It's also interesting to note, and, and there's a lot of theological ink spent on this discussion. In this verse, in these verses, Peter says, Bless you, you are to do everything you can to make your personal growth happen. And you contrast that to verses like Romans 8:28 through 30, it says we, which says, We know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose, those who he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son in order that he might be the firstborn amongst others. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those he also called, he also justified. And those he also justified, he also glorified. All of those he's being Jesus. Jesus being the actor in our faith. Jesus being the one whose grace calls us to him. Jesus being the one that spiritually... Effectively changes us, and Jesus is the one who ultimately allows us to be admitted to heaven. In these second verses, as you'll notice, we're not doing a whole lot. We don't have efficacious spiritual power. But yet, in other verses in the Bible, it says, Do all you can. What's the symbiosis in that relationship? And It's been said that while we play no role in our regeneration, it does not mean we have no role in our own sense of growth in holiness that accompanies faith. We're to make every effort to work along and in progress in our own sanctification, and today's message makes it clear that when it commands us to add to our faith a number of godly traits, So let me pair that back and just say the the summed up version is that God's calling you to be in cooperation with what He's doing in your life. God's saying, hey, these are important things that you need to track with in your own life. They're going to protect you. They're going to ensure your calling. They're going to help you be efficacious in how you live out your life on behalf of the Lord. There's a true exhortation to be deep in the Word where Peter says, add to your virtue knowledge. There's another true exhortation that says, don't stop with that knowledge. Be in the process of developing and growing yourself. James chapter 2 verse 14 has a rebuke for those who just grow in knowledge. It says, what good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but has no works? can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warmed and filled, without giving them the things they need for the body, what good is that? So also, faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. Some will say, you have faith and I have works, Show me your faith apart from your works, and I will show you my faith by my works. You believe that God is one, and you do well. But even the demons believe that, and they shudder. You know, one of the real positives about our church is that we're a people of the Word. We love God's Word. We preach it on Sunday. We have Bible studies throughout the week. We have small groups who do not want to give up going deep into the Word for anything whatsoever. That's a real positive for us. There's an exhortation here, though, to not stop with that. That, hey, the, the markers of personal growth and development are going to be measured in things like virtue and steadfastness. And brotherly love. You should certainly found those things in the Word. But don't stop there. And Peter doesn't stop there. He says, therefore, brothers, and when you see a... So I'll stop here. When you see a therefore in Scripture, you have to ask yourself, what is it? Therefore, right? Therefore, brothers, be all the more more diligent to confirm your calling and election. For if you practice these qualities, you will never fall, for in this way there there will be richly provided for you an entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Therefore (laughs) I intend always to remind you of these qualities, though you know them and are established in the truth that you have. I think it right as long as I am in this body to stir you up by way of reminder since I know that the putting off of my body will be soon, as our Lord Jesus Christ made it clear to me, I will make every effort so that after my departure, you may be able at any time to recall these things. So let me sum up. Peter's saying, hey, this isn't new information. That being said, as the pastor... I'm called to remind you. Because it's easy to forget. It's easy to get caught up in life. It's easy to want to go deep in the Word and kind of forget some of the standard lessons on a day-to-day basis. We need to be reminded. As Peter mentions in here, the putting off of his body will be soon. Let me translate. He's going to die soon. These are the last words of a minister, one of the apostles of Jesus. It says, his name will be written on one of the 12 cornerstones of the city in heaven. His last words are, I'm going to remind you of some of the basics, some of the principles, so that after I leave, you'll be able to remember these things. It's kind of a funny little commentary. There's a, there's a preacher a while back who said, sadly, the church has many children who are 70 years old or older. Now, Peter, in talking about character development, Peter walked with Jesus and had some of the most famous tests of character in Scripture, right? Like for any of the New Testament believers, if you're gonna look at somebody's character flubs and kinda draw those things out, Peter, God bless him, is at the top of that list. Striking the high priest's ear. Lord Jesus, I will never deny you. Cut to, I don't know him. <laughs> Peter. Somebody said this about Peter. Peter is more like ready, fire, aim. <laughs> Sometimes. <laughs> now, it's, uh, we need to be careful for this in our own life as well. That he, even those who have walked with Jesus for a while need to be focused on this continual development of our character lest we fall into the same trap as Peter did. Remember his identity at the beginning? I'm a bond servant. I'm a bond servant because I couldn't save myself, because I needed the grace of the Lord Jesus to work in my life, because I was powerless and I needed him. That's the first word of introduction this is a lesson from somebody who's struggled in their own character development to a certain degree, writing at the end of their life saying, hey, here's what I've learned. Don't lose these lessons. Billy Graham said this about being a Christian. He said, being a Christian is more than just an instantaneous conversion. It's a daily process whereby you grow to be more and more like Christ. So how do we do that? Verse 16 goes on and says, For we do not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of the Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. Cleverly devised myths. So let me put this in context. He's writing this letter in the Greco-Roman world. For those of you who know, the Greeks and the Romans each had their own set of gods, and some of these like, kind of crossed over. Okay? I'll, re- I'll read you a description of a couple of them. You can see what I mean. Dionysus, god of wine, fruitfulness, parties, and festivals. Ooh, sounds fun. list goes on. Also, god of madness, chaos, drunkenness, vegetation, ecstasy, and the theater. How do all those things get in one line? Like My goodness gracious. He's the twice-born son of Zeus in that Zeus snatched him from his mother's womb and stitched him into his own thigh to carry him until he was ready to be born. He's depicted initially as an older bearded God But as he was a god for a longer period of time in the culture, he became effeminate, young, and long-haired as he got older. Here's another one for you. Hera, queen of the gods and goddess of marriage, children, childbirth, heirs, kings, and empires. (sighs) A lot more normal. All right, we're back on track. But wait. There's more. She's the wife and sister of Zeus. Wife and sister, bad combination. The daughter of Cronus and Rhea, she's usually depicted as a regal woman in the prime of her life, wearing a diadem and a veil and holding a lotus-tipped staff. Although she's the goddess of marriage, her brother-husbands, many infidelities, drive her to jealousy and vengefulness. Her sacred animals because we all need a couple, right, are the heifer, the peacock, and the cuckoo. And she actually has a Roman counterpart god named Juno. So this was part of the religious landscape when Peter's writing this letter. Um, No doubt, like today, they probably had, you know, I would classify those as maybe, you know, myths. But Peter's also warning of cleverly devised myths maybe meaning myths that were a little bit closer to the Christian faith. Either way, we, we can say this globally about that spiritual landscape. There's a lot going on there. One of, the, one of the interesting things, though, this reminds me of the verses in Scripture where it talks about men creating idols, creating their own gods that they can hold in their hands, and, and how silly that is. Right? The story of the Bible starts with God creating man and one of our biggest mistakes in the world is that man thinks they can create God. Right? Like, hey, we should have a party God. woohoo, And a fertility God. We can go pray to them. And if it works, if we get what we want from praying to these gods, we'll just go do that. Doesn't that sound like a great idea? Jesus said it's It's a mistake, it's a fallacy to think that you can create your own God. In fact, throughout Scripture, we look at ancient Israel, and judgment comes on the nation when they turn aside from the one God to worship the many, lowercase g, gods. When they use the word gods there in Scripture, what they're not saying, you know, so we believe in what's called a monotheistic religion. There's one God. When it says Israel turned after other gods, what it's not saying is there's other omnipotent, omniscient gods who created the universe with God the Father, Son, Holy Spirit. What it's saying is these other people worship these spiritual entities they thought of as gods. So that's a descriptor of how the people saw these spiritual entities that's not a statement of their eternal divinity that Scripture is saying these other gods that Israel turned away to, Baal, Mammon, whoever it was, that they hold equal footing with God, our God. It's interesting, Baal and Mammon, right, had, were kind of like, like the Greek gods. Mammon was the god of money, and Baal, if I remember right, was the god of fertility, don't quote me on that, but they each kind of had their own space, kind of like these Greek, Greco-Roman gods, right? The, the party god, the fertility god. People were making their own gods to their own fallacy. Christians, we can sometimes do a little of this out of our own faith, and what I'm not saying is necessarily we need to make the error of turning away from Father, Son, Holy Spirit. We can make a god out of what we feel is the luggage that Jesus brings with him. By that, I mean the rest of the world kind of looks at us and sees and criticizes us for thinking that American Christianity comes with a white picket fence, 2.2 kids, a well-paying, stable job, and it's not that any of those things are bad, But to say that Jesus should come with this set of cultural luggage is a religious fallacy. In other parts of the world where they don't have those things, in fact, it seems like the gospel spreads quicker than in some of the places where the church is rooted and established and comfortable. Osgenes said this about folks who worship the trappings of Christianity along with the god with our god he said some people have a concept of god that's so fundamentally false it would be better for them to doubt than to remain devout the more devout they are the uglier they become in their faith since it's based on a lie doubt in such a case is not totally under undesirable it may be even a mark of spiritual intellectual sensitivity to error, for their picture of God is not God, but an idol. Peter goes on to talk about God the Father in verse 17 when he says, for when he, being Jesus, received honor and glory from God the Father, and the voice was borne to him by the majestic glory, this is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. We ourselves heard this voice born from heaven. We were there with him on the holy mountain, and we have have the prophetic word more fully confirmed to which you will do well to pay attention as a lamp shining in the darkness until the day comes and the morning star rises in your hearts. I'm going to stop right there and deal with uh, one of the th- theological discussions that happens during this text, and then we'll circle back to the, what I believe is the point of this paragraph. So there's a reference here to the morning star. For all y'all Bible dorks out there, the morning star is used a couple different ways throughout Scripture. It's used in one place to refer to the devil. Let me read you this one. Isaiah 14, 12. How you were fallen from heaven, O day star, son of the dawn, King James Version uses Lucifer, son of the morning, okay? Compare that to Revelation 22, 16, where we read, Jesus, I, Jesus, have sent my angel to testify to you about these things for the churches. I am the root and descendant of David, the bright morning star. Now, I'm willing to wager Peter's not talking about waiting for the morning star, the devil, okay? He's talking about waiting for the one and only morning star. How did, how did that language get imported to mean a couple of different things? It's in the ancient times, the idea of a morning star was one bright star that outshines the others, okay? It was more of a descriptor than a divine office. So, in the way that um, it's believed that Satan may have been the the brightest and most gifted angel, he would have been a morning star amongst the angels, whereas like the true morning star is Christ himself. In the same way that Scripture uses language of God to describe our God, Jehovah, Yahweh, Jesus Christ, and uses the language of God's to describe Mammon and Baal, that descriptor of God is two different things in two different places, In this scripture, we see that descriptor of morning star, and we don't connect it to Isaiah 14. We connect it to Revelation 22, that Jesus is the morning star that is referenced here. It goes on to say, knowing this first of all, that no scripture comes out of someone's private interpretation, and no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. So what Peter is contrasting, we just got out of the verses where he's talking about the myths of the world and how people have created God in their own image and want to worship that, right? Creating a party God doesn't make you change your heart, doesn't make you repent of your sin. In fact, it probably leads you to do dumb things and chalk it up to religion, right? Whereas what Peter's saying is we haven't created our own fables. I was, Peter's saying, I was on the mountain when I heard God speak. That these things that we prophesize about, those aren't my own interpretation, those are from God. One of the unique things about the Bible is it's written over various centuries with one common theme a multiplicity of prophecy, and it doesn't contradict itself. There's no other book that I know of that can make those claims. Peter claims truth based on his own experience. He has the personal authority to relate this claim. And for those of us who may not have been on the mountain to experience God speaking directly, he gave you a pathway on how to come and know and appreciate and witness and share God through by taking your faith and building virtue, supplementing your virtue with knowledge, knowledge, self-control, self-control, godliness, godliness, brotherly love, brotherly affection and ultimately love. Peter's giving us a similar pathway so that we can have our identity rooted in Jesus. We can, as we take Steps of development and growth in the life of Christ experience God working in our life to make our call and our election sure. Be reminded, though, that our authority and that power comes out of our identity, right? Like that lady in the, in the first story that we started with, I'm the lady who hands out the chicken, right? Right? It's like, we are the people that God has handed the grace. In light of all this, how do we live out our faith? Well, number one, we can understand we all have a sense of spiritual equality when it comes to heavenly value and access to God. Like Peter starts out in his letter, we all have an even bar of faith. God's given to each of us. That same salvic grace. Your authority in spiritual things is rooted in that identity. Your identity is in who you are, not what you do, but it will lead you, your identity will lead you to what you do, right? Tigers act like tigers. Fish, you know, tigers hunt things, fish swim, birds fly. Like, we, we act out, people act out on behalf of our identity. We see this in nature as well, animals acting out on behalf of their identity. We are saved by the Lord, and the things talked about in the Scripture will be steps that we take on behalf of our identity in Jesus. A second thing we can do in light of this text is evaluate our own Christian walk. And there's a saying that if you're still alive and you're still breathing, God isn't done with you yet. Which tells me we all have areas of our walk that we can examine, that we can pray over, that we can lay before Him, and that ultimately He can work in to make more fruitful. There's a quote that says, The the tragedy tragedy of man today... You mean what I know. (laughs) The tragedy of man today... It's not that he knows less and less about the meaning of life. It's that it bothers him less and less that he doesn't know the meaning of life. That speaks to the sensitivity of our hearts for God's purposes, right? And the the third thing you can do today is challenge your expectations. Challenge your expectations. I don't know if you guys have know, know this, but um, have you ever been to a circus or a zoo and seen an elephant chained up? I don't know if you know this, but an adult elephant could snap that chain. No big deal. That chain does not restrict that animal at this point in life. You know why it doesn't? When that elephant was little, baby elephant fresh out of the fresh-born elephant they would chain it up. And at that point in life, it could not break the chain. It would pull and pull and pull, and the days turned into weeks, and the weeks turned into months. And eventually, it learned, I can't break this chain. So it stopped trying. Fast forward a couple, two, three years. Well, guess what? A big elephant had no, would have no problem with that chain. But because he's learned otherwise, he no longer fights against it and no longer tries to break out of his chain. In some ways, that's kind of a metaphor for us with our struggles, isn't it? Right? Things we struggled with maybe early on in our Christian faith or before we accepted the Lord, we've come to think in our head, Hey, I... I can't overcome this. I've tried and I've tried and I've tried and I I have all this evidence in my mind where I can't overcome this. But maybe that statement is no longer true. Maybe it's in the past you hadn't been able to overcome it. But that wouldn't be true of you today. See, part of our life is struggle. Trust in it and engage in it. Journey is part of the experience, and to be quite frank, sometimes when you get wins over things, like it's, it's amazing how quickly they're forgotten and how quickly we just fill our life with other space to worry about, other things we need to worry about. Those struggles you face today in 100 years, they won't matter. The only thing that's going to matter is what you did with Jesus. See, many of us evaluate our life on a daily basis or or thinking in terms of the things we try to accomplish. We value our life and judge our life by whether or not we got what we wanted, right? I tried to do this. Did I get what I wanted? Yes, it's a success and no means it's a failure, right? Did, this turn out, did it turn out how you wanted? Yes is a success, no is a failure. That puts the oneness for purpose and success on us. But like our, like our scripture tells us, the oneness for success is, is in Jesus. He's called us. He's justified us. He's predestined us to glory. If you haven't heard the gospel presented clearly, it's this. God created man and loved him perfectly, but gave man a free will to decide how he wanted to live on this earth. And guess what? With one transgression, we destroyed perfection, right? It's like throwing a rock through a stained glass window. It's just one hole, but it's destroyed it. And we live in a broken, fallen world, hoping for something better. Hoping the suffering would stop, hoping we would find fulfillment, hoping our spouse would just do what we asked them to do? You know, heaven. The answer to all of this is that heaven's only available through Jesus. Through his redeeming grace and work in your life is the only way that you can be restored to perfection. It's out of your grasp. You can't reach it. You can't fight for it. You can't work hard enough to earn it. But here's the good news. It's free. It, it wasn't free to the one offering it to you. But it's free for you to accept here today. On behalf of that, I'll say whatever you have to lay to the Lord today, whether it's a sense of faith that you're trying to discover some challenge in your life that you haven't been able to overcome, or a clear sense of your purpose and identity in Jesus, lay it over to him. Like that free grace that works in our life to save us, so too is a free sense of your purpose and calling. So too will ultimately be a free sense of your healing and acceptance into heaven forever. And that's the glorious truth of the gospel. On behalf of that, let me, let me close us in prayer. Heavenly Father, we gather today before you and lift up to you our needs. God, we, we ask you to reach out to us on behalf of our identity. Help us to understand more clearly for what you've made us, Lord, how we can follow you in our specific, unique ways as individuals and as a community. Lord, I ask for the empowerment to share the truth with the world as there seems to be other cleverly devised myths running around the world today. Lord, we ask for the empowerment, the strength, the truth, and the wisdom to share your truth and clear up those things. We lift this all up to you in your holy and precious name, Jesus, and all God's people said, Amen.